When I was first exposed to Christianity, my freshman year in college, I was uh, sitting in a fellowship of Christian athletes meeting and uh, really kind of perplexed with what was going on in my life at the time. I was sitting next to an older student, a junior, who's also on the football team. I was struggling with homesickness, uh, but also with a lack of direction and purpose in my life, both in the context of a rigorous athletic regimen, not to mention my first year out of high school as a 17-year-old full-time college student. He asked me how I was doing, and I told him the truth. He said, how long have you been a Christian? And I said, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm questioning whether or not I'm a Christian. He said, let's talk afterward. So we sat through the rest of that study. I don't remember any of it, but I do remember that we went back to his dorm room with a couple of other football players to talk about what it meant to be a Christian. During that time afterward in that dorm room, he persuaded me to pray some sort of prayer and wrote these words in the front of this big, thick study Bible. His words, I, Todd Barnett, fully gave my will to Jesus Christ on September 21st, 1983. From this time forward, I'm Jesus' son. Signed, and then he put a blank, and I signed my signature, Todd Barnett. And then three witnesses, three football players, signed on to that. I expect that they thought that it might more fully ratify the event. He then instructed me to read the book of John. And I did. I began reading the book of John, and I remember distinctly being intrigued by some of the history, but never being moved by it at all. I guess you could say that it didn't stick. The book of John often serves as a measuring rod for separating the true disciple of Jesus Christ from the false disciple. I think it's safe to say that the true disciple of Jesus Christ, who is obeying the command of the apostle Peter to put off all malice, to put off all slander, to put off all gossip, and drink from the pure milk of God's word, that if he were to engage in a steady diet of the gospel of John, he'd be strengthened, he'd be encouraged, he'd grow. On the other hand, the person who is the false convert would only potentially be intrigued by some of the historical data, but not the theology of it. It wouldn't move him. He wouldn't understand it, and he'd reject especially the doctrine of the sovereignty of God within it. The book of John is a written apologetic for the Christian faith, but it's also an evangelistic manifesto. So it not only lays out what the theology of Christianity is, it reaches the lost with the promise of eternal life when it's properly taught and properly received. The author never mentions his name. Interesting, huh? He never mentions himself as the author, but the collaborative belief in the Christian faith for 1,800 years was nearly exclusively that the author was John the Apostle. Only in the last 200 years has this been brought into question. Gerald Borchert, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, interestingly says this, Leon Morris, perhaps the most prolific evangelical Johannine scholar, has summarized the situation as follows. Throughout most of its history, the church accepted without question that this gospel was written by John the Apostle. 
This view has been strongly criticized in modern times. Indeed, it has been abandoned and regarded as quite impossible by a great number of scholars. But, Morris concludes, there are still good grounds for accepting the traditional view. By way of contrast, in 1905, Kohler, writing in the Jewish Encyclopedia, reflected the views of left-wing critical scholarship by saying, The Gospel of John is the work of a Christian of the second century who endeavors to construe a history of Jesus upon the basis of belief in his supernatural existence. To him... Jesus is no longer the expected Messiah of the Jews, but a cosmic being, end quote. So polar opposites, the traditional expression of what Christianity, what the Christian faith has nearly always believed, Joe and I in authorship, John the Apostle wrote it. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But the polar opposite liberal theological view that comes from what is typically called German higher criticism, that's not a slam on Germans, that's just where it started. The idea, contrary to what we read in Hebrews 4.12, that the theologian sits in judgment of God's word. He stands over it in an effort to assess it, rather than what the writer of Hebrews has called us to do, to recognize that it judges the thoughts and intents of the human heart. The author five times refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's considered as an eyewitness authority on Jesus and his message. In chapter 19, verse 35, he says, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. An expression of the community reality that this was an authority on things related to the life and times of Jesus. In chapter 21, verse 24, he says, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So again a very clear and pointed expression of the fact that the author, in reference to himself, knows himself to be an authority. And had he written this in that context and the letter been disseminated to the church, he would have been refuted had that not been the case. This would logically be John, this authority. John was the authority in the community of the day, the Christian community. He functioned in this community with apostolic authority in a unique way. So if it's John, why does he omit his name? We don't ultimately know. But we do know that to omit his name is certainly an expression of humility. He didn't feel the need to express his own name. But is it a matter of pride, some sort of elitist thought about himself to call himself the one whom Jesus loved? No, it's the great expression of humility because that was in his mind his only expression of worth. It was the reality that Jesus loved him that made him of any value. And therefore, there was no need for him to declare much else about himself. In chapter 21, verse 2, he lists other apostles but omits his own name. He says, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. 
These are John's words in reference to other apostles, but again, a lack of willingness to specifically mention his own name. So again, this is an act of humility on his part. Besides, in the day in which it was written, there would have been no question about authorship, right? Of course not. In the day in which it was written, the whole church would have almost immediately had access to it, and had there been any question about the author, it would have been addressed on a full-scale level. Everyone knew then, and history records, that they knew it was John. The church was not asleep on the issue of authorship. The false apocryphal books were attributed to apostles and others close to Jesus, but the church scrutinized those false books and universally rejected this false authorship. The false claim of good men to have written these false books was completely universally refuted by the universal church. Yet, the church universally accepted John as the author of this gospel. You could say, well, isn't it a non-issue? It's only a non-issue if you know what I'm telling you. There will be those, especially those from liberal theological camps, who will call it into question based on higher criticism. The external evidence primarily boils down to this. The second century church father, Irenaeus, in his well-known work Against Heresies, notes regularly John to be the author. Irenaeus was the close disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was a close disciple of John. So Irenaeus was John's spiritual grandson, if you will. He would have known. Clement of Alexandria, also in the second century, referred to this gospel as the Apostle John's spiritual gospel. This was, uh, in his mind, the product of the Holy Spirit, as John had been aware of the synoptic gospels. So it was the common belief among the church fathers that John was the author. It is the fervent effort of liberal theologians in the last two centuries to call the book of John into question by calling the author into question. You might be wondering, why a fourth gospel? Was there really need for a fourth gospel? Well, if you know of the sufficiency of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, what we would call the plenary value of all of Scripture, which is why Paul declares his commitment to preach the whole counsel of God. Again, that term plenary value, equal value across the board with all Scripture. You know that in God's perfect wisdom and in his inspiration, he determined that it was best for all of the books within the Scripture to be canonized, to in fact be of equal value. So it's the complementary value of the Gospels that give us a well-round picture of the life of Jesus. The themes of the Gospels, each of the four Gospels, are all different. In Matthew, Jesus is most notably the King of the Jews, the Messiah. He is the one who will fulfill all Old Testament prophecies. He's the chosen one of God. He's to bring about salvation to all the nations. In Mark, he's the servant, the suffering servant, the one who would suffer and die for others, but calls us also to serve and to suffer and to die. In Luke, he's the son of man. His humanity is emphasized. His great interest, his personal love for people is most clearly expressed there. In fact, he lives as one 
of them, one among them, willing to associate with the lowly and to bring them hope in his association with them. In John, he's the Son of God. His deity is the primary expression of who he is. As the Son of God, he is God. He was with God, and he has always been God. The Gospel of John varies from the synoptic Gospels. The synoptic Gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why do we call them the synoptic Gospels? S-Y-N from the Latin term meaning same. Optic meaning visual or seen. Synoptic, same vision, same experience, really. So the synoptic Gospels are really the varied expressions of three different writers based on primarily the same material. But there is much variation in the material from John versus the Synoptic Gospels. The material not included in the Gospel of John, the narrative parables. You ever think about that? All the amazing parables that you read throughout the Synoptic Gospels. None of those in the Gospel of John. The transfiguration is missing. The institution of the Lord's table. Jesus casting out of a demon. Jesus' temptations. The Olivet Discourse. There's no description of Jesus' baptism. The calling of the 12 disciples. The central themes in the Synoptic Gospels. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. All missing, or at least not there. Probably better to say it that way. Material not included in the synoptics, which is also in the Gospel of John, all of chapters 2 through 4, every bit of it. The water into wine miracle, the experience with Nicodemus, ministry in Samaria, the resurrection of Lazarus, frequent visits to Jerusalem, long public discourses, private instruction to his disciples, clear declarations of his deity, in John 1, 1 to 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. A clear, pointed expression of his deity. Chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, another expression of the deity of Jesus Christ. Again, data in the book of John that you don't see in the synoptics. The I am statements. I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Each of these, in one sense, an expression of his deity but especially in John 8, 23, he said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And then in John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The Jews knew that in that moment when Jesus declared himself to be 
the I am, that he was, in fact, committing what they would describe as the ultimate heresy. He claimed to be the eternal existing one. There are a number of literary or poetic dualisms throughout the book of John that you don't see in the Synoptic Gospels. This contrast between life and death, the contrast between being from above, being from below, the contrast of light and dark, truth and lies, sight and blindness. What about the fact that John the Baptist, when asked if he is Elijah, says that he is not, while Jesus in Mark 9 says that he is? So here you have a seeming contradiction. We'll address that in our study in the Gospel of John. I'll keep you baited until that time. What about the fact that at Pentecost in Acts 2, where believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit for what some would say is the first time ever, while Jesus tells his disciples much earlier in John 20 to receive the Holy Spirit? What about that? We'll cover that as well. Why do the disciples seem to know so little about Jesus in the beginning of the Synoptic Gospels while early on in John's Gospel he is addressed as Rabbi, Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man, Lamb of God, and King of Israel? Why is Jesus cleansing of the temple at the beginning of his ministry in John and seemingly at the end of his ministry in Mark? Why are there three Passover events in John and only one in the Synoptic Gospels? Why is the writing style and Greek syntax of John so much simpler than that of the synoptics? Why is there so much more theology in John than in the synoptic books? While the synoptic gospels were completed some 20 or 30 years prior, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was convinced it needed to be written so much more emphasis as well on the Holy Spirit in the book of John than in the other Gospels. But why did John write this Gospel? In other words, what is its purpose? What was the need? Why another Gospel? Well, fundamentally, the record was not complete. It wouldn't be complete without all of Scripture. But specifically, he tells us in chapter 21, verse 25, now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So, well, John indicated that no book, no paper, the whole world itself is not large enough to contain all that Jesus was responsible for. There was more that needed to be written. But there were then... And there continue today to be many false expressions of the person of Christ. Were we to study any of Scripture, the ultimate goal ought to be to know Jesus better. To be conformed more to his image. And yet, in the scholarly world, it's so easy to become so focused on the jots and tittles, which are of immense importance. But at times to therefore forego the whole point of those jots and tittles and simply engage in arguments over who's right about the theological details. As I said, there were a number of false expressions, and many of those continue today. There was the matter of what's called docetism. In docetism, Jesus was simply an image 
not a real person, not a real human, didn't have a real body. It's from the Greek term dakeo, which means to seem or to appear. This was a prevalent way of thinking. The Greeks believed all matter to be evil. And so God himself couldn't inhabit a human body. He couldn't have human flesh because God cannot take on sinful human flesh. As you know from the Apostle John in 1 John 4, verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. The clear, really painful to those who would believe falsehood, a refutation of that false heresy of docetism. The Gospel of John also lays this heresy to rest with the repeated expressions in a narrative fashion of Jesus' deity and his humanity. There is also the heresy of adoptionism. This is the idea that Jesus was never God, but that he was a man, a good man, and ultimately God later adopted him as his son. This is also called dynamic monarchianism. And the idea is that there is a specific adoption, that God goes specifically after this one really good man and makes him the son of God. But John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Mormonism teaches that he was a man who became God. We refer to him as the God-man. They would refer to him as the man-God. A good man, so good, so obedient, that he was blessed with deity. Jehovah's Witnesses teach something very similar to that, but different. It is that he is a God, but not the almighty God doesn't take very long into the book of Revelation to see a refutation of that, where he is declared to be the almighty God. And yet they will tell you somehow that that is not a reference to Jesus when it clearly is. Modalism, or Sibelianism, named after Sibelius, is the idea that God is three personalities or manifestations. So while Jesus is not exactly God, he is a temporary manifestation of God, as is the Father and the Holy Spirit, all at different times, never together. So God is not one God, three persons. This heresy teaches that God is one God, three alternating schizophrenic personalities. That's T.D. Jake's primary focus of theology, in case you were wondering what the foundation of his heresies is. An offshoot of this is patropassianism, which is the view that it was God the Father who became incarnate. Patropassianism. The Father becomes the Son. It's the view that God the Father became incarnate, suffered, died, and was resurrected. It essentially teaches that God the Father became his own Son. I think there's a song about that, including how you become your own grandmother or something. I'm not sure. Joyce Meyer said he could have helped himself up until the point where he said, I commend my spirit into your hands. At that point, he couldn't do nothing for himself anymore. He had become sin. He was no longer the son of God. He was sin. 
So for your Joyce Meyer fan friends, tell them. Joyce Meyer is a heretic. She is not a Christian. She teaches a false Jesus just as T.D. Jakes does. Kenneth Copeland has said, what, why does God have to pay the price for this thing? He has to have a man that is like that first one. So he's kind of alluding to Romans 5 here. He goes on to say, it's got to be all man. It's got to be all man. He cannot be a God and come storming in here with attributes and dignities that are not common to man. He can't do that. It's not legal, end quote. There's also the head in the sand view that Jesus does not and never did exist. So we've just mentioned a handful of heresies here regarding the person of Jesus. But very important that we acknowledge that these heresies are, in a sense, alive and well. And all I mean by alive is that there are folks who are promoting them. They are an attack at the root of biblical Christianity. But in John 20, beginning with verse 24, and you can really look at this section of the book of John in a sense as the starting place. And I'm not talking about some sort of scribal error where they put the beginning at the end or anything like that. I'm simply saying that this is a very, very careful encapsulation of what John has intended to record and say. So here we go. John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. And he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's a bold statement. Why do we call him Doubting Thomas? This is why. He needed to experience the reality of the person of Christ. The text goes on to say, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. This is the New Testament version of laying out a fleece, testing God, calling upon God to do more than what he has recorded as being absolutely, completely efficient for belief and trust in him. But Jesus used this. Jesus capitalized on this. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. This clearly was also a measure of grace on Jesus' part to communicate with Thomas. But he goes on to say, Thomas does, my Lord and my God, believing, believing because it had been proven to him. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who's he referring to? Could be any number of folks, but he's certainly referring to the Old Testament saint who believed because God clearly delineated a sacrificial system that pointed to the Lamb of God. And by this time, John has already twice pointed to Jesus among his own disciples and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So the Jewish followers, who were very steeped, obviously, in the sacrificial system, would have known that Jesus was this ultimate sacrificial lamb Thomas was holding out. He needed more than just being told. He needed to see and experience it. You and I are called to believe. Over a hundred times in the book of John, we are commanded to believe. Not to believe with blind faith, but to believe with legitimate faith. There's no risk here. You're not risking becoming noted as a weak and mindless theologian if you believe in the truth of Scripture. But it is important that you understand how we got the Bible. This is why we have Iron Men. This is why we have, wow, one of the reasons because we go into those details in those studies that focus upon how we can know that the Scripture is, in fact, the Scripture, and how we can know, in fact, that nothing else is the Scripture. As we move forward in this study, I am deeply excited, primarily because John has made it clear there are not many books in the Bible where there's a very, very clear purpose statement in the way that you might see a business or even a church today declare, this is our purpose statement. But John says it this way. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's critical. It's critical that you are able to refute the false doctrine of false churches that teach a false Christ. You know that great quote from Charles Spurgeon that discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. And so as you look at the false religions of our day, the pseudo-Christian religions, and there are many, you must know the difference. The best way to know the difference is to be deeply rooted in the sound theology of the book of John, other books of the Bible, of course. But the basic truths that you see in the book of John will bolster your Christian faith to the place where you are able to act like Jesus and with grace and kindness and love communicate truth to those who would refute the character of Christ. Isn't that exciting? How discouraging to go into a discussion with someone about the person of Christ unable to defend who he has said he is in his inerrant word, really stained, uh, sloppily disturbed by so much 
content that comes to us from the internet, or if you grew up without the internet like I did, maybe in your pseudo-church or maybe even some things that you watched on TV, you may not know it, but you might yet be wrongly informed by traditions of false religions. I used to watch Kenneth Copeland as a kid. I liked him. I thought, this guy's really confident. He, he must know what he's talking about. And that's how false teachers operate. They operate, as Paul points out, with a confidence about that which about they know nothing. You don't want to be that person that knows nothing. You want to be that person that increasingly knows the person of Christ. Don't ever, ever, ever let your theological pursuits result in higher scholarship that enables you to be able to say, well, I've got this figured out. Those guys at that other seminary don't. But that you would love Jesus. That you would know him more deeply. That you would be awe-inspired by his sovereignty and his grace. That you would be moved, not so much to talk about God, but to love God so much that you can't help but talk about God. I think sometimes we as Christians, especially when we are steeped in sound doctrine, can be tempted to engage in discussion about God that is not necessarily a love of God and maybe not even a love of the person with whom we're trying to communicate, but maybe simply an exercise in winning the theological discussion. There was a time in Jesus' ministry where they attempted to make him king, but with the wrong motive. They saw signs, and they thought, this must be the best magician ever. And so they were going to crown him with a false motive. In John 6, verse 22, it says, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the primary focus of the Christian life, to be believing, to be increasingly believing, to be pleading with the Lord, Lord, help my unbelief, help me believe, to obey the command that God gave to Thomas. Do not disbelieve, believe. Believe in objective criteria 
Not some blind faith that says, well, we believe, don't we? That's great. But no, it understands the object of that belief, and it believes it increasingly. Verse 30 says, So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And while we can be certain that this was a heartfelt, sincere request, we can also be certain that they would abandon, ultimately, the person of Christ as he's explaining to them the bread of heaven is the one who comes from heaven, that Jesus himself would be the pursuit of the one who would have eternal life. Jesus said to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. As I said, John calls us to believe over a hundred times. It's a command. But if we simply live with this mindless kind of life that says, yeah, we're Christians, we just believe. We don't understand any of it. But man, we sure believe it. That's not Christianity. The reason that the Gospel of John is the length that it is and that it contains all the theology that it does and it is inspired by the Holy Spirit that it is inspired by is because there is objective truth, not only by which you and I must live, but that in which you and I must trust. It is a wholehearted belief in all the contents of the Scripture, but for the purposes of our study and for the purposes of the Apostle John, all the contents specifically of the book of John. And we can't really be faithful to an annual celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ without addressing this topic in John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, 
But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. There's one interesting note of information here regarding that in which Jesus was preserved. It was cloths, not the shroud of Turin. That's a distraction. It's a dishonest, non-true lie. And you've read things about things like this before, and what is the intention of that? The same intention of that story that you've probably seen recently where they're claiming that things are actually going on at Jesus' tomb. We don't know where Jesus' tomb is precisely. The ascension place of Mary, we know that that place doesn't even exist And yet there's a place in Jerusalem, I've been there, where it's declared that this is the ascension place of Mary. All those heretical distractions are intended to draw your focus away from the person of Christ. But were you today to find out that a close loved one had died, and then you found out that the report was wrong, would you not run? Would you not do all that you could to get there as quickly as possible? Of course you would. Peter, John, hearing from Mary, the tomb is empty. There must have been some sliver of hope in their hearts that the empty tomb meant the resurrection. And that theology would develop further in their hearts. Jesus told them that that would happen. He assured them that he would suffer, that he would die, and he would rise again. Hard to believe, I'm sure, in the midst of it, even though they would have witnessed the resurrection of a dead man, Lazarus, unto new life, knowing that Jesus, if he could resurrect Lazarus, could fulfill the prophecy of resurrecting his own life. No man has the authority to take my life. I do. Not only to lay it down, but to raise it up. The hope of the resurrection is eternal life, which is contrasted by the reality that those who die in their sins will not be resurrected unto new life, but will in fact be resurrected unto death, an eternity of suffering, never, ever to be spared the pain of that suffering. But our hope, even as Paul has pointed out in 1 Corinthians 15, is in this resurrection. And Paul goes so far as to say that if our hope is in Jesus Christ in this lifetime alone, we are of all men most to be pitied. Why? Because there is no hope without the literal physical, bodily resurrection of the God-man, Jesus Christ. My hope is that if this is new to you 
or if this is something that you have rejected consistently, that today would be the day during which you would no longer reject that truth, that you would stop disbelieving and that today you would believe, but that for each of us, for those who are in Christ, who have believed, that we would believe more deeply, that we would find Jesus Christ, in fact, to be the bread of life, that we would find our hope in him, and that the daily devotion of our lives individually and our lives together would be an exaltation of who Jesus Christ is. Let's pray. Father, it's with immense joy that we continue to keep our focus upon your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us, help us, Father, to draw up and out the whisperings of false, unsound theology, whether it come from a movie or a conversation or an experience in the past. Lord, may we find our Christology exclusively in your word. We thank you for its perfection. Would we trust that you'd make us humble, that we wouldn't find sound theology to be the tool by which we would vehemently or even ungraciously correct others, but that we would long to be corrected as we read, as we study, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would in fact consider others as more important than self, just as he, being God, did so. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We pray that every day, every moment, we would find him, in fact, to be the bread of life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.